0: Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you for every word. We thank you for um, what this chapter fifteen means to our faith. We thank you for the journey that we've been on. But Lord, we're not done, and so I pray today that um, that we all can uh, walk away with a new truth, maybe a new perspective, just a snapshot, just something that's pointing us to you, Father. We love you so much. We love your son. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you haven't already, open up your Bible to chapter 15 of the book of Mark. That's where we're going to be. Um, last week, uh, I blubbered my way through our lesson, and we talked about the five choices, right? We talked about these different folks that, that were profiled in this whole little section in chapter 14, um, and, and now today, we're looking at Friday morning. We're we're looking at where Jesus is, just before, during, after the crucifixion. It's heavy. It's big. Um. I don't know if you've ever really looked at the Holy Week timeline. I posted something. If you follow us on our social media on, on Facebook, I posted a link. I'll email it out to you if you want to take a look. But it's fascinating, actually, because this, this, uh, this cool timeline shows us all the things that were happening during the Holy Week and what all the people were doing. And I want you to notice someone who's missing during this particular section that we're going to look at, chapter 15. You know who's missing? The disciples. They're nowhere on the scene And so I think back to what we talked about last week about how there were choices made, that Peter and the disciples made choices, right? But our God's a God of second chances, amen? And so while the disciples are not starring in this chapter 15, there are some folks that I think that Mark wants us to pay attention to. Um, I read this and it got me thinking. It's N.T. Wright, one of my favorite commentaries, one of my favorite theologians, he said this about this section of Mark, he said that Mark builds up to a story, builds up the story of Jesus' crucifixion through small pictures, little snapshots. One detail after another that together tell the story in a really clipped sequence, moving swiftly, amen, right? Or Mark, he's like moving, right, changing. Moving swiftly from scene to scene. At no point does Mark stay long on a particular theme except for one main theme, and this theme emerges, emerges over and over, and that is that Jesus is crucified as the King of the Jews. Over and over and over. In fact, I, I can't remember how many times, like six times in these verses, you're going to hear King of the Jews, King of the Jews, King of the Jews. That's the title Mark is going to give, and there's a reason. So when I was thinking through this idea of these snapshots, you know, I, I recently my, my son, he's the one who lives in Waco, graduated recently. His girlfriend, she is in grad school, and she's a new media major, and so that's all like visual stuff, right? Like photographs and, and telling a story through, through visual um, storytelling. And so she's working on her thesis project, and her project is so cool, y'all. I, I was, she was talking me through it and showing me some of it. But here's what she was doing. Okay, so she's in Waco. So what she's done is she went and, and did a bunch of research and found this photographer that like in the early 1900s, he took pictures of Waco, like all the things in Waco. I know you're like, all the things? What things? There's not a lot of, yeah, I know. Magnolia was not there yet, so sorry. But but it was fascinating because there was some of the things that you've seen if you watch Fixer Upper, like the Alico building, okay, or like Waco High School. Their, their, their building is, is it's like a historic building in Waco. But anyway, there were several like landmarks And this guy took pictures of them all through um, the years, like from the time that they were being built. And and so it was pretty fascinating history of Waco. And so what my my son's um, girlfriend did, she went, decided she was going to replicate these photographs. Now, what's, what's hard <laughs> is that while the, the, the subject of the photograph is still there, that like the Alico building, for example, you have to go back and piece different snapshots together to try to figure out not only the angle, but like the time of day and, and all these different things. So when my, my son was telling us about how she was going and, and going about photographing all this, he said he would go with her because he's also a photography guy. And he would kind of take pictures of her taking pictures because it would be like her trying to take a picture of a tree or of a, of a geographical something. And it was like, how do we then piece it back together against this photograph from the 1900s? And so all these little snapshots kind of led them to what the ultimate goal was, which was this historical perspective of how things have changed. And so I started thinking like, you know what that reminded me of? It reminded me of like you know how, like, um, and don't act like you don't, when you watch all those, like, mur- murder mystery things, you know, on Netflix and stuff, and it's like, they have the investigation wall. You know what I'm talking about. You know, yeah, I know. You all are like, yeah, you take the photographs, and you get the yarn, and you, yeah, like, I mean, every I mean, I guess if you're going to investigate something, you have to do that, right? But that's what I was thinking about as I was looking at all these snapshots that Mark gives us. It's like he, he takes these Polaroids and slaps them on the wall and then draws a string, and then draws a string, and it's like, everything connects, we notice like if you, if you, I'm gonna guess, this is just a guess, educated guess, you've heard the story of the Holy Week, you've heard the story of Jesus' march to the cross, you've heard the story, right? And you've heard a lot of details, but if you're like me, I'm reading Mark's version and I'm like, hold up, this is weird. Like, <laughs> he didn't, he barely says anything about the crucifixion itself or barely says anything about the flogging or all these details that you're just kinda like, feel like a heavy part of the story. But what he's doing is he's giving us snapshots that lead us to the cross. And so I thought today we should look at these four snapshots, okay? We're going to look at four different little moments that Mark gives us to lead us to the cross. Okay, first we're going to look at Barabbas, okay? We're going to look at Simon of Cyrene. We're going to look at the Roman centurion. And we're going to look at Joseph of Arimathea. All names, all pictures, all snapshots. Well, reminders. I think we kind of know some of this stuff by now, but it's always good, right, to set the context before we get into this story. The first thing I want to mention is I said this before. This is Friday morning, okay? It's early Friday morning, and we know what's coming, right? Friday morning. I want you to know this, too. Remember who the primary reader or hearer of this particular narrative was. Do you remember who Mark is writing to primarily besides us in Flower Mound, Texas? The Romans, okay? So he's writing this perspective of, of Jesus' ministry, of, of his death, and ultimately his resurrection. He's writing to people that have no Jewish heritage, okay? They're like us. They're Gentiles. So he's writing to Romans. So what I want you to understand, when we hear the things that Mark points out, this story to these hearers, these, these readers, would primarily be like a political thing, okay? Here's why. The cross. When we think about the cross, we think about, right, jewelry. <laughs> no. We think about celebrating because we, we are reverent to the image of the cross because for us it means salvation. For us it has a, a meaning, right? But for these people, the cross and the idea of crucifixion, it would have been like this political symbol, and here's how. It would have been the ultimate symbol of Roman power, Because here's what the cross meant to the the Jewish people at the time. Okay, this is what it meant. It meant that the Roman government is basically saying, hey, we are in charge, and this is what happens to people who get in our way. And so, in fact, when you read about the history of crucifixions, it was a very common, torturous, terrible, awful thing that happened and, and, and what we do know um, when you read the history is that also, like most of the time, wherever crucifixions occurred, like in this particular case, like up on this hill, that the, the post that held the cross, they just left those there. And it was the cross post that was carried by the prisoner up to the, the post. And so those posts were left there as a reminder, like a shadow, right? And so people always knew, like, that was ominous, that was scary, when we talked about Pilate last week, remember we talked about the choice he made. I want you to know something. We're going to look at the first 15 verses here where um, we, we talked about it, but we're going to, we're going to remind ourselves a little bit what, what was going on. But I want you to remember something about Pilate, okay? That his aim, his whole aim was to keep everything peaceful because what was going on at the time? Passover. I heard you all, wake up, drink your coffee, Okay. Passover. And so remember when I told you a couple weeks ago, I know you slept since then, me too. Passover was like just bazillions of Jewish people were making a pilgrimage, right? So like he's the Roman ruler at the time. And so he's got to like keep it chill. Otherwise there could be uprisings and stuff, right? So Pilate's only goal here is to keep it peaceful, prevent riots, not necessarily to create a fair trial, but he just wants to get through Passover without any big trouble, Okay. And the other thing, and I kind of mentioned this before, but I want you to really pay attention to this, is that six times in these 32 verses, you're going to hear that phrase. What phrase? King of the Jews. And we talked a little bit about last week about how that had political implications. In fact, that's the whole reason that the Romans were, were even going to arrest and then ultimately crucify him. And in fact, it's hanging over his head on the cross when he goes to the cross, right? Because that is what he's accused of. He's accused of saying that he is a king. Mark wants the readers, us, to recognize that this isn't just the end of an era for a good teacher. There's more to the story, right? Well, I wanted to do something a little different than we've done. I I want to, I'm going to read chapter 15 to you. And you're like, yeah, thanks. I've read it a couple times. Okay, well, I'm going to read it in the New Living Translation. I don't know if anybody, anybody works or studies from that, but I love this translation because while being very accurate, it is a semi-paraphrase, okay, but it kind of tells the story as a narrative, like a story. And I want you to just, I want you to just receive it. Just listen, okay? All these things that feel so familiar to us, let's listen to these words again together, okay? And then we're going to unpack those five, um, those um, four, excuse me, snapshots. And so chapter 15 verse one starts like this: very, in, or very early in the morning, the leading priests, the elders and the teachers of the religious law, the entire high council, met to discuss their next step. And they bound Jesus and they led him away and took him to Pilate, the Roman governor. Pilate asked Jesus, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, You have said it. And then the leading priest kept accusing him of many crimes, and Pilate asked him, Aren't you going to answer them? What about all these charges they are bringing against you? But Jesus said nothing, much to Pilate's surprise. Now, It was the governor's custom each year during Passover celebration to release one prisoner, anyone the people wanted, anyone the people requested. And one of the prisoners at the time was Barabbas. And he was a revolutionary who had committed murder in an uprising. And the crowd went to Pilate and asked him to release a prisoner as usual. Would you like me to release for you the king of the Jews, Pilate asked. For he realized by now that the leading priests had arrested Jesus out of envy. But at this point, the leading priest stirred up the crowd to demand the release of Barabbas instead of Jesus. And Pilate asked them, then what should I do with this man that you call the king of the Jews? And they shouted back, crucify him. Why, Pilate demanded, what crime has he committed? But the mob roared even louder, crucify him. So to pacify the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them and he ordered Jesus flogged with a lead-tipped whip. And then he he turned him over to the Roman soldiers to be crucified. The soldiers took Jesus into the courtyard of the governor's headquarters, And they called out the entire regiment. They dressed him in a purple robe, and they wove branches into a crown, and they put it on his head, and they saluted him, and they taunted him. Hail the king of the Jews. And they struck him in the head with reeds, and they spit on him, and they dropped to their knees in mock worship. And when they were finally tired of mocking him, they took... The He per- took off the purple robe and put his own clothes on him again, and then they led him away to be crucified. A passerby named Simon, who was from Cyrene, was coming up from the countryside just then. And the soldiers forced him to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was the father of Alexander and Rufus. And they brought Jesus to the place of Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And they offered him wine, drugged with myrrh, but he refused it. And then the soldiers nailed him to the cross. And they divided his clothes and they threw dice to see who would get each piece. It was nine o'clock in the morning. It was nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified him. And a sign announced the charge against him and it read, The King of the Jews. The revolutionaries were crucified, crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And the people, they were passing by and they were shouting abuses and shaking their heads in mockery. Ha, look at you now. They yelled at him. You said you were going to destroy the temple and then rebuild it in three days? Well, then save yourself and come down off the cross. And the leading priests and the teachers of the religious law, they also mocked him. He saved others, they scoffed, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down off the cross so we can see it and believe him. And even the men who were crucified with Jesus ridiculed him. At noon, darkness fell across the whole land until 3 o'clock. And then at 3 o'clock, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. Which means, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And some of the bystanders misunderstood and they thought he was calling out for the prophet Elijah. And one of them ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, holding it up to him on a reed stick so he could drink it. Wait, he said, let's see whether Elijah comes to take him down. And then Jesus uttered another loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn in two from the top To the bottom. And when the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, This man truly was the Son of God. And some women were there watching from a distance, including Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James the Younger and of Joseph and Siloam. And they had been following Jesus and had cared for him while he was in Galilee. And many other women had come. With him to Jerusalem were also there. This all happened on a Friday, the day of preparation, the day before the Sabbath. And as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea took a risk and he went to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Joseph was an honored member of the high council and he was waiting for the kingdom of God to come. Pilate couldn't believe that Jesus was already dead. And so he called for the Roman officer and asked if he had died yet. The officer confirmed that Jesus was dead. So Pilate told Joseph that he could have the body. And Joseph bought a long sheet of linen cloth. And then he took Jesus' body down from the cross and he wrapped it in cloth and he laid it in the tomb that had been carved out of rock. And he rolled a stone in front of the entrance Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. There's a lot there, right? What about the snapshots? What about those four little snapshots that that Mark gives us? They're brief, but they all lead us to the cross, right? The first is Barabbas, that dude, Barabbas. Barabbas. The scene opens with um, Mark's account of Jesus' crucifixion opens with this guy. Pilate had this thing, okay? I mentioned that it was, a, it was a tradition, if you will, but I want you to understand something. There was a deal that the Roman governor would do this like annual Passover amnesty gift to the Jewish people, okay? It was completely political and completely like manipulative. You know, he's basically trying to buy their graces so they'll be okay and chill until they leave again. And so this is, a not, this is not just a one-time thing. This happens every year. So the people would know that this was going to be a possibility, an option. And so he releases one prisoner, a condemned man, to gain the goodwill and the support of the people. Barabbas was a violent Jewish rebel against Rome. He had murdered, and he deserves to die. And Pilate already was on record saying about Jesus, I have no grounds, I find no grounds to charge this man, and yet there was Jesus going to the cross too. And so Pilate thinks this is a perfect opportunity to release Jesus and then also kind of stick it to the Sanhedrin, right? Like if he releases Jesus, they'll be kind of mad and they'll be like, oh, right? And so he thinks he's got this perfect plan, but they stir up the crowd. The crowd says, no, we want Barabbas. And I want you to think about something. I've never thought of this before. Barabbas was the first person for whom Jesus died. This evil, murdering, Man. He died in Barabbas's place. Barabbas was set free, and he could never be accused of the crimes again because of what Jesus did. I haven't thought about that. Have you ever thought about that? There was a debt. The debt was paid, the penalty complete, and the law's requirement was fulfilled. He did what the guilty man could not do for himself, he set him free. Our first example of what Jesus did for us. And so, the snapshot of Barabbas, this one little moment in chapter 15 that Mark gives us, we see that crucifixion is a personal exchange. He died for all, but he died for you, for me, right? For Barabbas. He deserved to die. Jesus dies instead, he goes free. Well, one snapshot. One Polaroid on the wall. The second snapshot is the, is the person of Simon of Cyrene. We see his little moment in like verses 16 through 32-ish or something. Um, and what we see about him is that, is that he is on the march. He's on the march to the cross. I, I read some, a little bit about this likely path um, from like the soldiers' barracks to Golgotha, which is where Jesus would die. And it's, it's referred to often as the Via Dolorosa. And I'd I'd never really looked into that much. And all that really means is that's the way of the suffering. And in fact, if you go to Jerusalem, there's a, what what they they propose and they think is the Via Dolorosa, and and you can actually walk through the stations of the cross, you know, and and walk the steps that potentially could have been the steps that Jesus walked. Something interesting about this way, this, this path, is it would be public, Okay, so there's people, right? That this is a known thing that there's these crucifixions and these, these criminals were going to be receiving the crossbar and carrying it up this pathway up to their death. So people were everywhere. Simon of Cyrene was one of them. It's not like he came to, to do what he was going to then be doing. He just happened to be there. Isn't it cool when God just puts us places and we go, ah, see you. And this is one of those moments. So Simon of Cyrene is there. So what do we know about this guy? We know this, that um, he was a passerby. We know that Cyrene is in North Africa, okay? So he was probably a Jew on pilgrimage to Jerusalem. He was probably coming for Passover. I love that we see um, reference to the fact that he's the father to Rufus and Alexander. Interestingly, Romans 16, 13, Paul actually makes reference to a believer in the early church named Rufus. And and a lot of theologians believe that this could potentially be his son. And so what about that? Like, let's just think about that. Like, what happens here in this man's life, in this snapshot, could ultimately have a faith legacy that impacts generations to come? Isn't that amazing? Do you have those moments in your life? You got people that you can look back and you can say, that one moment where they were where they were needed to be, and God knew, and they didn't know, but they were there, and all of a sudden, this legacy of faith that's passed down for generations, maybe you don't have that. Maybe you are that. I don't know. But I love the idea that the impact of this moment went generations deep. Simon then was called in by the Roman guards. He was to carry the cross beam. And I immediately remember that Jesus said something about this in Mark 8. Do you remember? Mark 8, verse 34, Jesus said this. And calling the crowd to him and his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Do you think some people that heard those words at the time were maybe reliving them in their minds now? Maybe. Maybe. There were people on the route. They were shouting and scoffing and mocking and yelling. And yet, here's Simon carrying the cross. And so I I would say this snapshot, this snapshot of this Simon, that we're reminded that God wastes nothing. He wastes nothing. This wasn't part of Simon's plan. I don't think this was on his to-do list for the day, right? And yet, he was present, and I'm convinced that his role impacted faith legacies for future generations. I'm convinced of it. Another snapshot. Well, the third snapshot um, was the Roman centurion. And this guy, man, this guy blows my mind. Because, you know, while we believe that he was probably involved in a lot of different parts of the story, he has one verse, and I'm going to read it so you remember, verse 39. Verse 39. When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the son of God. A Roman centurion. You know what that means? A Roman centurion is this. He is an officer in charge of at least 100 men. And, and I wonder, I wonder, was he part of the, the, all the nonsense that was happening before Jesus actually got led to the cross, potentially? Was he part of the abuse, the scourge, um, scoffing, all the flogging. Was he part of that? I don't know. But I know he's there and he's on his shift. So we know he's present. It's interesting because I think like um, Mark is so intentional, right? Like he's so like quick and moving all the time. But we cannot miss the fact that this was not just a, oh yeah, by the way, this guy said this. This was a very intentional moment where Mark says, I'm gonna include this here because it needs to be said about this man, a Roman centurion. When you think about how Christ has been referred to as the son of God, it hasn't happened a lot so far. Let me remind you of how it has happened, okay? First, he was anointed as the son of God by God himself, okay? And that happened in chapter 1 verse 11 during the baptism, right? It happened again in chapter 9 verse 7 during the transfiguration. God in his god voice, remember God spoke down and said, "Guys," he didn't say that. "This is my son," right? And so God himself anointed Jesus as the son of God. That was the first way. The second, the second way we see it in the book of Mark is by demons. "Hello, what? What? Demons." They're the ones who said, "This is who this is." Isn't that just fascinating? Like, we can never underestimate the fact that while they don't have their faith put in Jesus Christ as their Savior, they know who he is. Demons. They called him the Son of God in chapter 1, verse 24, in chapter 1, verse 34, in chapter 3, verse 11, in chapter 5, verse 7, okay? And after the demons, we also see that that Mark... In chapter 1, verse 1, remember the very first sentence, the sentence that lays it out for us, that Mark calls him the son of God. And then Jesus himself. Jesus himself admits that that's who he is in chapter 12, verse 6, and 13, verse 32, and 14, verses 61 and 62, and now by a Gentile officer. He's the first man. He's the first human being, sane human being, that says that Jesus is the son of God. Isn't that interesting? A Roman centurion who five minutes ago was probably beating and spitting on our savior and then he saw how he died. I don't know what that means. I don't know what that means to you, but to me, it means that he saw something deeper than just vision, deeper than anger, deeper than all the things he saw and he proclaimed and he received. That's cool, right? Like there's hope. Anybody? God of second chances right there in verse 39. I love that. I love the idea that, and through the snapshot of this guy, this Roman centurion, that we're reminded that he invites all of us to declare that he is Lord. Every one of us. No matter what you did five minutes ago, no matter what your history is or is not, no matter what your pedigree is, no matter what your impressive resume says, no matter what, That we're all invited. We just have to acknowledge him as the son of God. I love that we see transformation. We see somebody receiving eternal life right here in verse 39. That's cool. I love that snapshot. Well, there's one more. I am skipping something, and I wanted you to all know this because you're girls. Um, The women. Amen. Kind of have an amen about the women. Last at the cross, first at the tomb, right? We're going to talk about them next week. I'm saving them. I'm saving them, and we're going to talk about them when we wrap this thing up. But I, uh, I want you to know that I see that, and I recognize that that. I love that Mark gives so many words to the fact that the women were there. There's a lot for us to learn from that. Well, the fourth one, though, that I want to talk about today is Joseph of Arimathea. <clears throat> Our version here said that he took a risk the new living. The ESV version says that he took courage. I think of it this way. He handcocked it. He, John Hancocked it. You know what he did? He did this. You know, John Hancock, remember he signed real big on that Declaration of Independence? I love that this guy, he was like one of the, the, the highfalutin guys with the clipboards and the robe, and he was higher up in the high priests and the decision makers. And this was the moment he said, you know what? I'm coming out and I'm telling you what I believe and that this is the son of God. It's beautiful, right? He was watching for the kingdom of God. Those are the words Mark uses. And so what we know about him is he was an honored member of the high council, but he was a secret disciple of Jesus Christ. And now he's no longer secret, and that took courage. The same guys that were conjuring up the plan to kill Jesus are his homies. They're his people. They're his peers. And now he's the one stepping out and saying, but this is where I put my faith so courageous. We can't understand that kind of courage, right? His request served Rome's purposes. You see, there was this um, Jewish, the Jewish people had these concerns about leaving the dead exposed after sunset. That's in Deuteronomy 21. And so um, since his disciples were nowhere to be found, anybody find them? They're nowhere to be. They're hiding like babies, just like Jesus said they would. But they're nowhere to be found. And so this would have served Rome to have some sort of Jewish person come and say that I'll take him off the cross and I'll I'll, I'll properly um, bury him. Joseph was a rich man. We know this. He bought linens and he rolled the stone over this entrance. And he gave Jesus this resting place, right? It was reverent. It was beautiful. I want you to think about one more thing before we move on. I want you to think about this snapshot. And I want you to realize Who was present at the time? Who was present at the time? In verse 47, we learn this. Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus' body was laid. We know that Joseph of Arimathea was the one who put him there. In the book of John, John 19, verses 38 through 42, we also know, Mark doesn't mention it here, that Nicodemus was there. And so you know what we have here? At the tomb, here's what we have. We have two women and and two Pharisees burying Jesus. No disciples, no followers. Two Pharisees and two women. People that would have been absolutely disgraced to have been there at that time. And those were the witnesses. Blows my mind. Anybody that says that this story is faked, I'll tell you what, here's one of the reasons why it's not. This is not who they would have put as a witness if they wanted people to believe this story. It would not have been these people. Definitely not women. So, through the snapshot of Joseph of Arimathea, no matter what, no matter what our background is, no matter what our history is, that we can be unashamed in being followers of Jesus Christ. This is proof, to women and to Pharisees. And we'll never ever ever be alone it's beautiful right sometimes we feel lonely but we're not alone I'll tell you what these four snapshots they lead us somewhere right set up on the on the wall with our little yarn threading us to the cross it's Friday right we know it's Friday and we know what's coming Barabbas shows us the snapshot that that tells us that crucifixion is a personal exchange. Simon of Cyrene tells us that God wastes nothing. The Roman centurion, he tells us that, that he invites all of us to declare that he is the Lord. Joseph of Arimathea, he's unashamed in being a follower of Jesus Christ. What about you? What is your snapshot telling the world? What is your snapshot leading people to? I thought about this. Um, In closing, a couple things about this snapshot leading us to the cross. I want you to think about something. The prophecies that were fulfilled by the way Jesus died on the cross, there's like 500 of them. And they were fulfilled. They were not manufactured. They couldn't have been. It's impossible. I want you to know something else about his crucifixion, about him on the cross. He died in the darkness. Did you read that detail? He died in the darkness in the middle of the afternoon. You see, what's interesting about that, and I know people will be like, oh, well, it could have been an eclipse. I mean, there's always people that are naysayers like, yeah, 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 semantics. No, because what happens is Passover occurs during full moon period, and there is no way that that an eclipse would have occurred except for some kind of cosmic God thing, which is what this was. This was God's miracle. This was his sign of judgment on all of those who were who were Doubting, disgracing, and ultimately crucifying his son. You see, what's interesting to me is that in Exodus 10, way back in the old timey days in the the Old Testament, remember I told you that that Passover is a celebration of God rescuing his people from slavery in Egypt and taking them to to victory, right? And we know that there were all those plagues, right? We talked about the 10th plague. Remember that was the firstborn son and that's the whole Passover thing is the, the blood of the lamb over the doorway. I want you to know something. If you don't have these memorized, which I don't, the ninth plague, the one before the firstborn son, you know what it was? Three days of darkness. Three days of darkness. Okay, so I I hear this and I'm like, huh, interesting coincidence. Not a coincidence at all. The darkness of Calvary was this announcement by God that his firstborn and beloved son, the Lamb of God, was giving his life for the sins of the world. He died in darkness. It's amazing, isn't it? We also know that he was crucified at 3 p.m. You know what time the Passover lamb is crucified, excuse me, you know what time the Passover lamb is slain for a Passover meal? Take it just take a guess. Yeah. Cool, right? Coincidence? When you hear about the veil that was torn from the top to the bottom, I want you to remember something about that. It was a curtain. Right? This big, heavy, woven thing. It was in the inner court of the temple in Jerusalem, in the Holy of Holies. And so it kept the Ark of the Covenant separate from all the other people and all the nonsense. You see, the, whole, the high priest would go in there once a year to offer atonement for the sins of the people. It was this whole thing. And so this curtain served a purpose. That was God's presence. It was very thick, and it separated the holy of holy from the rest of the temple. So when Jesus died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins, for my sins, that this heavy curtain was torn from the top to the bottom. It wasn't ripped from the bottom to the top. It wasn't like man was tearing it or manufacturing or creating something. Instead, it was ripped from the top to the bottom because God was ripping it, and he was basically saying, you no longer are on the outside. You can come in because of my son. It's amazing, right? These details that Mark gives us, these little snippets, they matter to our story, to what our snapshots are pointing us to, don't they? I... um I don't know if you've ever heard about the seven sayings on the cross. There were seven things that Jesus uttered while on the cross. Mark gives us one because God bless him, he's Mark, right? Seven things that Jesus said, I've never thought of this before. I want you to hear what he said and I want you to consider what it meant. The first saying that he said was, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing, forgiveness while he's on the cross. The second saying was, I assure you today you will be with me in paradise when he looked to his side to the other guy being crucified. Salvation. Granting him salvation. Third saying was, woman, behold, here is your son speaking to his mama. He's he's talking about a relationship. The fourth thing, my God, my God. This is what we hear in, in Mark. And it's actually a quote from Psalm 22. Jesus knew his Bible, okay? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's about abandonment. And the fifth saying was, I'm thirsty. And that's Jesus in distress. The sixth saying, he says, it is finished. And that's triumph. And the last saying is, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit, and that is reunion. Where he was meant to be, right? Reunion with his Father. All of these, even these seven sayings of Jesus when he was fully man, hanging on the cross in complete distress, tell us about forgiveness, about salvation, about relationship, about triumph, about the reunion that we were meant to have, because God put eternity in our hearts too, when your name is spoken someday, when people talk about your snapshot, what will it lead other people to? I, uh, I heard before, and I don't know if you've heard this before, but S.M. Lockridge, amazing pastor who passed away in 2000. He was a pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in San Diego for like a many, many years. And he has this amazing, even if you don't know his name, you've heard what I'm going to say. He has this beautiful, amazing Poem, if you will, sermon, if you will, talking about Friday. You know, you heard it? It's Friday, but Sunday's coming. I can't do it justice. So Google it, go watch the YouTube, because it's beautiful when you hear it in this man's voice. But I want you to remember this. When you are thinking about those places in your life that create the snapshot of your life and what it's going to lead to, I want you to really think about something. This is Friday. If the story ended here, this would be the most depressing, awful thing that would be like, why are we studying this nonsense, right? This is terrible, but it's not because Sunday's coming. And so, listen to the words with me of S.M. Lockridge, and then I'm going to ras- wrap us up in prayer, okay? It's Friday. Jesus is praying, and Peter's sleeping, and Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling, the council is conspiring, the crowds, they're vilifying, and they don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying, Peter's denying, but they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They rope him in scarlet, and they crown him with thorns, and they don't know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. See, Jesus walking to Calvary, his blood dripping, his body stumbling, and his spirit's burdened. But you see, it's only Friday because Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning and evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nail my Savior's hands to the cross and they nail my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raise him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something Sunday's coming. It's Friday, the disciples are questioning what has happened to their king, and the Pharisees are celebrating, and their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday, and Sunday's coming. It's Friday, and he's hanging on the cross. Feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying, and nobody can save him? Well, it's Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death is won. Sin has conquered. And Satan's just laughing. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands guard and a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It's only Friday, and Sunday is coming. If that isn't the best news ever, I hope it is the best news for you. I hope you don't leave here and feel completely disconnected to what Jesus did on Friday. Because he did it for us. I mean, he did it for them. He did it for us. We are the Roman centurion, amen? And so I, I, I hope that you don't leave here indifferent. I hope that you don't leave here unaffected. And I hope that if you know Jesus as your Savior, that you instead leave here energized and ready to share. I know that, that Jess told us about all the Easter services. And Easter is really great. And people, you know, do egg hunts and they get like fancy dresses on and they go to brunch. But let me just tell you, you know what it's really about. And we need to be the light. We need to share the truth. Amen. And so I'm going to pray for you. Let's pray together. Um, Pray with me. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for Friday. Thank you for all of this. Like, it's so hard for us to read, and we're so quick. I, I, I confess, I'm so quick to just read the story like I always have ever since Sunday school days, thinking about bunnies and egg hunts. Lord, forgive me for for forgetting all of these snapshots that led to what you did on the cross for me. I pray today we don't forget. I don't want to forget. Lord, I want my picture to be up on that wall leading to you, whatever that looks like. Use me, use my life. Take it. And I pray today that we can come to know you in a deeper way because of this, because of this Friday. And Father, we look forward to talking about Sunday. We look forward to talking about the women and how, oh my gosh, how cool it is that Mark makes sure that we women know about the women who were there. Thank you. Thank you for those words. Lord, we, we, we just thank you so much. Um, wow, thank you so much for what you did. In your name we pray, amen.